Evidence and Answers. How do you share the gospel with a hostile audience? Most Christians use a formula for evangelism, which is effective with an open audience, but is not effective with a person closed to the message of Christ. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukren. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's message by Dr. Oz Guinness was recorded at our recent Hawaii Apologetics Conference. This conference is hosted each year by Pat Zukren. Pat presents many renowned Christian apologists and international speakers, all experts in their field. This year's theme was Apologetics That Connects. Remember, if you're unable to hear this entire message, all of our broadcasts are available on our website. So check us out. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now here's Dr. Oz Guinness with part two of his message entitled, Fool's Talk. But every time we want to transgress and be more and more brazen and more and more edgy and more and more daring, eventually what you do is you make evil cool. And you can see with our video games and so on how cool evil has become and people don't realize the moral enormity of taking the lives of human beings made in the image of God. Modernity has amplified the destructiveness enormously. Let's come on to the fourth, and this is the only step I'm I'm going no further than this today because of time. We need to assess the different interpretations. This is the heart of our apologetic responses. In other words, the experiences are so awful, the questions are so profound, that humans have to make sense of them. Have to make sense of them. And you can think of the many ways people make bad sense. I I won't go into all that. Take the whole book of Job, which is an example of Job's comforters who got it all wrong, and the Lord judges them for their cruelty. No, we're not going to the negative. How, though, do people try and make sense of this evil and suffering which is our world? Well, they do it not through science. Science can't tell you the color of evil. Science can't weigh evil. Science can't tell you the dimensions of evil. Science is silent before evil. Philosophy can't. After 3,000 years, as some of the philosophers openly admit today, Philosophy has no assured answers to any of the great questions that have been raised in 3,000 years. Magnificent discussions, very helpful clarifications. Philosophy has no answers. Science has no answers. Early 20th century, some people looked to art. Think of Gauguin's painting, What Went Swither and things like that. But no one today thinks that art has an answer to the profound questions. You have to go to the religions and the worldviews. Now when you do that, and this is a simple apologetic tip, it looks as if there are a thousand and one possible answers. How could you ever look at them all and make a decent decision? But while there may be a thousand and one, I picked that number out of the air, while there may be a huge number of possible worldviews and religions, for all practical purposes there are only three families of faiths. And when I say families, I mean worldviews and faiths that have a common family resemblance, think of us, a common family resemblance because they all go back to the same ultimate source of reality. So when you see it that way, the three big families of faiths are the Eastern, 
the secularist, and the Abrahamic. Now, in the Eastern families, the ultimate source of reality is an impersonal ground of being. In the secularist family of faith, the ultimate source of reality is chance. Chance or mystery. No one quite knows why there's something rather than nothing. What Bertrand Russell called a chance collocation of atoms, some extraordinary collision. Of course, in the Abrahamic family, there is a personal, infinite God or an infinite, personal God. Now, when you see that, each of the three families answers all the questions in the light of that ultimate source of being, reality, including their answers to the problem of evil. Take the Eastern one. And again, remember the little tip. Contrast is the mother of clarity. Contrast is the mother of clarity. When you see the alternatives to the gospel, the gospel shines clearer in all its magnificence. What does the East say? Well, we haven't time to look at it in depth. You do your reading for yourself. Many of you probably come from Buddhist or maybe Hindu backgrounds. I grew up in a Buddhist culture. I actually studied under a guru for a while in my 20s. If you go to the East, we've got to say their diagnosis of the problem is good. Their remedy is deficient. What do I mean? Buddhism is a religion-sized answer to the problem of evil. At the heart of everything is dukkha, the Sanskrit word for affliction or suffering. And you know both the Hindus and the Buddhists agree on this. We are on the wheel of life. And we're attached to the wheel because our desire leads to craving, which leads to attachment, which binds us to the wheel, and we go round and round and round thousands of times, the Hindus say. So very unlike the Californians in the time when you and I first knew each other, Danny, who would say, reincarnation man, groovy. Reincarnation is not groovy man groovy. It's a matter of fatalistic, weary resignation. And the problem in the East isn't that you die. The problem is you're born again on the wheel, not in Jesus. And you go round and round and round and round. And the goal is to escape the wheel. And for Siddhartha Gautama, it wasn't through self-indulgence and hedonism, and it wasn't through asceticism. It's through the middle path. But if you follow the way of Gautama, the enlightened one, the Buddha, his way of approaching evil is renunciation, withdrawal from. So freedom is not freedom to be an individual, it's freedom from individuality, because individuality is the problem. When Buddha was enlightened, he didn't say, I am liberated. He said, it is liberated. He'd achieved the not-self. Buddha Goza, one of his followers, says, figure this one out, I am nowhere, a somewhatness for anyone. A famous Zen master said, the goal of Zen is not incarnation, that's Christian. The goal of Zen is not incarnation, it's excarnation. Nirvana means the great deathless lake. Sounds incredibly appealing. Nirvana, the great deathless lake of extinction. One of the philosophers says, there is a path to Nirvana, but there is no one who enters it. Because you're beyond individuality if you get there. Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, called his own children. Think of this, all of you who are parents. He called his own children, his, his son rather, ball and chain. Rahula. Why? Relationships are holding him back. 
from transcending, from renouncing, from withdrawing. Again, I would say, as a diagnosis of dukkha affliction, incredibly realistic. As a remedy, drastic beyond words. As I said last night, Buddhism is the most gigantic no delivered to human aspirations ever. That's the East. Read it for yourself. Follow it for yourself. Talk to people. Get them to explore. Don't take our words for it. That's what they say. How about our secularist friends? I had the privilege of meeting Bertrand Russell. I remember, well remember when I was with the BBC interviewing Madeleine Murray O'Hare. What an impossible woman she was. Goodness. I knew Christopher Hitchens a little and some of these people. How do they see it? They're not like the East, no. But Bertrand Russell and Sartre and Camus and Hitchens and many of the others, we come from chance. So there's no meaning in the universe. As Bertrand Russell said to us, we are like the Greek giant Atlas who carries the world of his own meaning on his own shoulders. Do it yourself. As Nietzsche says, you've got to so live to be able to say, thus I willed it. Or Ayn Rand, you've got to so live to be able to say, and I meant it this way. We do it ourselves. And the world is evil, so we fight it. But take Camus. Many of you must have read his book, The Plague. He was my hero before I came to faith. In The Plague, which is this metaphor of evil breaking out in the world, Dr. Rieu, the protagonist, fights the plague for all he's worth. To his great credit, he cannot bear to see a human die. Magnificent stuff. But as he buries one after another after another, he says at the end of a day after the funeral of one of his friends, I'm facing never-ending defeat. Why? Because evil and existence are one. This is the way the world is and always has been and never will be anything different. And you well know his other picture, the myth of Sisyphus, the man condemned to roll the boulder up the hill and rolls down again, rolls it up, rolls down again. Never-ending defeat. So I often used to look at Bertrand Russell's face like a craggy old eagle. And he admitted to us, and I was just a student then, he admitted to us he read two novels a week fiction to take his mind off the horror of the possibility of the end of the world through nuclear disaster. He couldn't bear it. Samuel Beckett used to say, the real evil is being born. Existence is the error. And if you believe that, that's the way the world is, you fight it for all you're worth. But never in a million years will you ever overcome it. Courageous, Sometimes heroic, sometimes puts us to shame, but bleak and ultimately forlorn. How about our Christian view? Again, no time to do it in depth, <laughs> very little time to do it in any uh, sense. Let me mention the way I approach this. And remember, I don't roll out these things step by step with people. I try and find out where they are and then just bring in the truth that's relevant to where they are. You could look at the biblical view of this from many angles, including the evil one or including sin. For me, though, the toughest thing thrown against us is what's called the trilemma. You know what a dilemma is, a, a problem with two horns. A trilemma has three. The trilemma thrown at Christians and Jews goes actually back before Jesus. 
But you hear it in David Hume, you hear it in J.L. Mackey, you hear it in the New Atheists. In other words, is evil evil? Is God all good? And is God all powerful? And the objection is simply, you cannot believe all three together. What's the answer? The false answer, which many people take, including the rabbi who wrote, Why do bad things happen to good people? The false answer is to relax one of them. Well, evil, no, it's not that evil. But you can't say that. The rabbi didn't. His son, who was a teenager, had rapid aging disease and was dying. He knew evil was evil. Or you can say, well, evil is evil, but God is not all mostly good. But if there's any shadow of doubt anywhere, how do we trust him? The absolute goodness of God is crucial to the Scriptures and to anyone trusting God in the darkness. Then the third one, is he all-powerful? Certainly doesn't look like it. My wife had cancer. We've all seen horrendous things, probably in this room full alone. We've got unspeakable tragedies if we were all to share the things. How do we believe in God as all-powerful in the light of that? The trilemma. What's the answer? In the Scriptures, all three of them are reinforced. They're stressed. Evil is terribly evil, flagrantly wrong. God is absolutely good, covenantally good, and He is all-powerful, sovereign. But in Scripture, each one is given a little twist that turns them from a challenge into an assurance. I haven't time to go into all three, but I'll just suggest them briefly. Take the first. Is evil evil? The Bible says yes. It is flagrantly evil, radically evil. But unlike our atheist friends, remember existence is the error. This is the way the world is. The Bible says no. It should have been otherwise. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Evil is the gatecrasher, the alien, the party pooper that's broken in. It shouldn't have been this way. Once it wasn't this way, one day it will not be this way. But for the moment when we see it horrendously wrong, it's all wrong. It's outrageously wrong. It was not supposed to be this way. It should have been otherwise. You say, where do you base that? Let me tell you a story. When I was living many years ago with Francis Schaeffer, we heard the story of an American Christian leader who'd been in Paris because his son had been killed in a cycling accident. He flew over to lead the funeral, and people came back to Switzerland and told us the story of the funeral. He'd preached at his son's funeral on Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord. And people said, what magnificent trust and hope. It was wonderful. And Schaefer just listened to the story of the funeral, and he said quietly, I hope he felt the same thing inside. Didn't think any more. Three weeks later, we got a call. Could this great Christian leader come and talk to Schaefer? And he came, and I remember introducing them. And there are only three of us in the chalet, but you know, Swiss chalets have wooden walls. They're rather thin. If you raise your voice, you can easily hear. Ten minutes after they started talking, you could hear this great Christian leader cursing, swearing, blaspheming. Why did God take his son? He was furious. And we left the chalet. Uh, we weren't in the same room anyway, but we just left the chalet out of respect so they could talk. And later that night I said, I don't want to pry, but I asked Schaefer what sort of line he took. He said, I took him to John 11. And we read John 11. 
Now, you all know John alone has the shortest verse in the Bible. The Sunday school question, Jesus wept. That wasn't what he took him to. Three times, it says, much stronger in the Greek than the English, Jesus was livid, livid. One word's repeated twice. It is the strongest Greek word for furious anger. Aeschylus uses the word for war horses. Hearing the trumpets, rear up on their hind legs, snort through their nostrils, and charge into battle. And that word snort in spirit is the Greek word for furious, outrageous indignation. That's the word used twice of Jesus. Why? You can see it discussed from Oregon, Calvin, many others. Chrysostom. Our Lord made the world good, he and his father, very good. And he comes into it, and it's broken, ruined, oppression, hypocrisy. And now his good friend struck down in the middle of life prematurely. He doesn't just weep with them. He is furious at the way sin. It should have been otherwise. And when we're shocked at evil or outraged at evil, we're only feeling the way God feels. And that's wonderfully liberating. You see in John 11, not only God's face wet with tears, but God's face flushed with anger. And I should be too. The early church taught that it's wrong to be angry when you shouldn't, but it's equally wrong not to be angry when you should. When an atheist is instinctively angry, he's angry against what is and will never change it. But when we are instinctively shocked or upset or outraged, we're outraged again what should never have been and one day will not be when the last tear is wiped away and justice is brought back to the earth. Evil is evil, but it should have been otherwise. The other two more quickly. Is God all good? The Bible's answer is no other God has wounds. No other God has wounds. He cares, he comes, he suffers with us. Think of the words of the Lord to Moses. He'd seen the cry of Israel. Think of the suffering servant, but supremely think of our Lord. Among many people who came to faith through realizing this was Dostoevsky. He came to faith, he said, through the hellfire of doubt. But one of the turning points for him was when he was looking at Hans Holbein's painting in Switzerland of the descent of Jesus from the cross. And you know what that means, the taking down of the dead body of Jesus. And Dostoevsky looked at it for hours. And at the end of it, he put in the words of Alyosha and the brothers Karamazov, I do not know the answer to the problem of evil, but I do know love. No other God has wounds. The third one is the hardest to explain briefly. Is God all powerful? Actually, one of my tutors at Oxford has given what philosophers believe is the best answer on this one in a simple story. How do we trust God? Is it rational to trust God when he doesn't look as if he has any power over the terrible things happening all the time? The one Oxford tutor who was a Christian in the philosophy department in those days, there are many more of them now, he gave the story what's called the story of the, the parable of the resistance fighter. Let me put it like this. We're in World War II. And imagine we're in a French pub and Danny and I are together and Danny comes to me and he says... I gather you're the resistance leader locally. I want to join the resistance. What we would have said if we talked for two hours, we're only going to talk two hours together. After tonight, we can't talk again. It's too dangerous. Ask me any question you like if you want to put your trust in me. But after this, you trust me in the dark. 
Sometimes what I'm doing is obvious. I'm rescuing Pastor John. Sometimes it won't be obvious. I'm in Gestapo uniform arresting Pastor John and unbeknownst to you, releasing him round the corner because I know that the Nazis are going to arrest Pastor John and so on. And the greatest fear in World War II in the French resistance was the fear of betrayal, putting your trust in the wrong person. But of course, after the war, all the secrets were open and everyone knew why it had been happened this way. Now, my tutor's point was this. There are two questions every Christian must answer in faith. The existence of God, is he there? And the goodness of God, is he good, his character? Both those questions are finally not answered by philosophical arguments. They're answered in Jesus. Finally, the philosophical arguments have their place. Finally in Jesus, we know God is there. He's Jesus' Father. And we know God is good. He's Jesus' Father. Then we trust him in the dark. We don't know what the resistant leader is doing, but we know why we trust him. We're in the dark about a thousand things in this world, but we're not in the dark about the Lord. And one day, when we're no longer in enemy territory and the war is over and the codes are broken and the secrets are explained, we will see what the Lord is doing and all the good things he's been weaving out of the terrible things in our world. You have to think it through for yourself. But I think the Christian answer to the problem of the trilemma is profound. Do we have all the answers? No. But we know the one who does. Let me draw this to a conclusion. The very toughest challenge since World War II is the challenge that was put forward by Adorno from the Frankfurt School. After Auschwitz, there cannot be a God. Auschwitz was evil, so malignant, so malevolent, so monstrous, nobody can believe in God. But he also said after Auschwitz, there cannot be love. And after Auschwitz, there cannot be poetry. In other words, for Adorno, God, love, beauty, all were called into question. What's the answer to that? Well, movingly, the answer came from Viktor Frankl. In his posthumous book, almost everyone's read his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, but he wrote, at least he didn't publish, but it was written, published after his death, a posthumous book called Man's Search for Ultimate Meaning. And in it, he answers Adorno. He says, people who say that were not in Auschwitz. In Auschwitz, more people discovered faith and deepened faith than lost it. And remember what I said earlier about the intellectual atheists who committed suicide. In Auschwitz, more people deepened and discovered faith than lost it. And then he gives a wonderful little picture. He said, if you have a little fire, a little breeze, can blow it out. That's inadequate faith. And people have an inadequate faith. They hit suffering and give it all up. He said, but real faith is like a big fire. And what happens when a big fire is met by a big wind? It fans it into an even bigger fire that can't be put out. And I read that and paused, and it reminded me of my own beloved mother, who's in heaven now. But she would say it was in Henan province, with the five million, we didn't know it was that many then, with the five million dying around her. 
including burying my two brothers. I nearly died. It was then she knew that her faith was unshakably real because of the presence of God in the heart of the evil and the suffering. Atheists tell us that evil is the rock of atheism. In other words, faith founders, not at all. It is atheism that's inadequate. And our faith in the Lord, while we don't have all the answers that we would like to have and that one day we will have, there is nothing like the profundity of the biblical answer to evil and suffering. Thank you. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. Be sure to join us once again as we enjoy another exciting show. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. <laughs>